Epigenetics Podcast Episode 7. Epigenetics and Inactivation. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support team of Active Motif. The topic of this episode is epigenetics and inactivation. Our special guest for this episode is Edith Hurt from the Collège de France and designated Director General of the European Molecular Biology Laboratory. And I'm happy to sit down now with you here at your office at the Emble in Heidelberg. Thank you, Edith, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience because they might not know you as, as well. Um, you did your PhD in the lab of Dr. Mike Fried at the Imperial Cancer Research Center in London. You then moved on and did your postdoc in the laboratory of Dr. Philip Evner at the Institu Institut Pasteur in Paris, Paris or Paris. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, after visiting Dr. Dr. David Spector's lab at Cold Spring Harbor in New York, you came back to Paris and became team leader of the Nuclear Dynamics and Genome Plasticity Unit. And since 2010, you are director of the Genetics and Developmental Biology. In uh, 2013, you were selected a fellow of the Royal Society, and now you will head to the EMBL in Heidelberg to become the director general of the EMBL on the 1st of January 2019. That's right. Um, a question I like to ask every guest at the start of our little podcast is, um, how did you become interested in pursuing a career in science and biology? Well, um, so I was... I was always quite curious as a child um, and I went to, I only went to girls schools um, where it was okay to do science and I was good at science and I had fantastic teachers. I had very good maths and physics teachers. So it wasn't too difficult for me to decide then to do science at university. But uh, when I, when I went to Cambridge, I started out just doing physics maths, chemistry, I'd never done any biology. And then I fell in love with biology um, during my time there. And I converted to biology and I, I ended up doing genetics. Again, I was really lucky. I had fantastic um, teachers, professors. I met some amazing people, people like Mike Ashburner, John Gurdon. So, and it was, it was such fun um, that they managed to convince me, uh, the people in the genetics department, that I should do a PhD. I wasn't completely sure I wanted to do a PhD, but I knew that I wanted to do something academic. And this was back in 1986, where most of my colleagues were just going into finance. It was, yeah. those were the years. And so I was in that tiny minority that decided uh, I actually enjoyed, you know, thinking and doing. Um, so I ended up doing a PhD and, and never looked back, I guess. <laughs> so was it more the biology or more the environment, the mentoring that? It, I No, the biology really excited me. Um, I realized that, you know, when I went to Cambridge, I was probably going to try and do astronomy. That was the kind of physics I was interested in. Um, but then I realized that with biology, there was so much going on, so much excitement. It was yeah. contagious, actually. So it was the personalities doing the biology who convinced me that this was exciting to look into. And then once I got into it, it was it was easy to be convinced. Yeah. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a research scientist, though. I should say that, you know, for all those young people out there, I had my moments of doubt right through my 20s. But then, uh, you know, I, I progressively got more and more hooked and, uh, yeah. and then I fell in love with X-inactivation and, <laughs> and never looked back. <laughs> yeah, here we are. And what always interests me is 
where people end up and how it, they got there. I mean, you're British and then you ended up in Paris. How did that come? Um, well, I met my husband-to-be when I was in Cambridge and he's French. Oh, and um, so, yes, I, I followed him to France, although that's not quite true. We we decided to do postdocs um, in France because both of us had found a lab that we liked. And so I went there thinking that we'd actually move away at some point back to the UK or even to go to the US. Um, and it just turned out that France was actually a wonderful place especially to do epigenetics research. It's, it was very, is very strong in epigenetics. Um, and both he and I are in that field. So we just ended up staying and it's also, it's also a great place uh, to, to live. So it's always a combination of, of the profession and also the private life. Yes, that, that yeah, that's what, that. exactly. So you will become now the Embel's next director general on January 1st, as I already said, uh, you're, yeah. you're following Ian Matai. Um, Will your lab also move from Paris to, to the Embel or will your lab stay in Paris? No, they're moving. Um, so not everyone is moving, but uh, uh, several people are coming with me, which is great. And uh, some of them are actually already moving next month. Okay, um, so it's, it's already beginning. It's beginning. My lab uh, is, is already ready, so to speak. Uh, the, the space is, uh, has been renovated here. Uh, and they're excited. I think it's actually an opportunity uh, for them to come to this wonderful uh, place uh, with, you know, a yeah. uh, wonderful philosophy of doing science. So everyone's excited. Um, so. so so you will be split or is it that they're just finishing up work and then they no. will also leave? Well, so um, a lot of people were finishing up. Uh, so the people in Paris who are not coming with me will move on to you know, either set up their own labs oh, okay. or go off and do uh, postdocs or one of them's going to retire. So it was a natural, I mean, it, it happened very easily, actually. I was a bit worried, but yeah, um, sure. those people who came to my lab more recently were the ones who immediately said, well, we're coming to Heidelberg. And those who would naturally have moved on anyway um, are moving on. So. Yeah. I guess that's a good solution. Yeah. I'm um, coming to you personally. What what did the election as Emil director mean for you personally? I mean, I guess it's Yeah, a, it was I have to admit I was very um surprised <laughs> to be asked in the beginning. It was a shock uh when I, uh, my name was was put forward. Um and I was also quite hesitant. Uh but then after a bit of soul searching, um I realized that this was uh, an amazing opportunity and so I was really uh, deeply honored um, that that I should be ultimately offered this this job um, and so why did I accept it um, I guess that there are three main reasons one of them is that it's about Europe and European science and um, I'm really a very profoundly European citizen. I really care about Europe. I'm, although I'm British, I'm actually half Greek and I live in oh. France. So I've been raised to believe in, in Europe and, and why the European Union was, was made, etc. So Brexit really hit me hard. Uh, and actually, it was a very important part of my decision. I wanted to do something to show that Europe is important and excels. So that was the first reason. Second reason was um, as a, a scientist working right now, I did my PhD in a cancer institute. Right now I'm working in a cancer institute, the Curie Institute. Um, but I'm doing basic research and uh, I love the basic research I do and 
the degree to which it can be translated sometimes. It can be useful to pathologists to have, you know, markers of epigenetics and heterochromatin, etc. So um, I really treasure uh, basic research and its importance. And I realize that these days it, it can be a bit more difficult to, to find funding, to, to support basic research, which is maybe, in, you know, some areas of research, it's quite difficult to, to be applicable or to be translatable. Yep. And so I, I want to defend that. And I think EMBL is one of the, the institutions that allows, you know, curiosity-driven research um, and also uh, innovation to happen very naturally. So that was my second reason. And my third reason, of course, um, I'm not... I'm not a I'm not a feminist, but I actually believe that it's important that you know fifty percent of the the world population are um, represented yeah. at every level, and I realized that this was uh, an opportunity as a woman uh, to take on a job that could perhaps be you know inspiring to other women. Um, so that that actually was part of my my reasoning as well. So. So. Having all those, all this in mind, what will what will be the biggest challenges that you think will you will have to overcome yeah. in the next years that now you're starting? And I'm sure there'll be many, but um, I suppose one of the the biggest challenges that's always been there um, in in this kind of uh, uh, institution or organization is um, the fact that you know the economic and political climate can change quite rapidly in Europe. Uh, things happen, and and um, And so I'm going to have to navigate uh, with all of that uh, to make sure that science is always on the agenda, that um, EMBL sort of fulfills its its missions, uh, that the member states uh, want it to. Um, and so originally, you know, EMBL was, was actually uh, set up or created to sort of foster collaboration across borders um, and to sort of develop a center of excellence uh, for European science. And that definitely worked. It's happened. It's even, you know, beyond, I think, the dreams uh, that, that people had initially. Uh, and my challenge will be not only to maintain that, whatever happens uh, in, in terms of the economic and political context of Europe, but also to, to try and, and use science as a way to, to help uh, countries look forward and give hope and provide opportunities for innovation. So, so I think that's, uh, that's going to be one challenge I'm going to have to rise up to. And I'm just a scientist, so I'm going to have to learn some of these uh, political, uh, stuff. political uh, talents. But I'm very well surrounded here. There are yeah. some amazing people uh, within EMBL uh, who, who can help uh, with that. Um, and then maybe the other challenge, which is also, I guess, an opportunity, is to try to make sure that EMBL uh, continues to be at the forefront um, at the many different levels that it already is, and not just in the research it produces, the researchers, it, the training it does, the services it provides. And so trying to find, uh, indeed, the, the, the future program, which I'm going to have to start thinking about already next year. And so, and so maybe there, the challenge that we're thinking about is to sort of explore uh, helping our planet. So I think this is something that people have woken up to finally realizing yeah. that, you know, we're not in a good place right now in terms of the way our planet uh, is being um, treated and um, if we want to try and you know find uh, a way of of going forward and avoiding uh, disasters we need to understand and so we need to understand about 
life on our planet. And that's where you know an organization like Emble can come in very useful because it's about understanding you know the molecular biology of life. And so maybe that is uh, one of the challenges I, th I feel that we could rise up to um, going into the study of organisms, not just in the laboratory, but in their natural environments and looking at the influences that changes in environment can bring, looking not just at single organisms, but maybe whole ecosystems. I'm not saying we're all going to go off and do ecology, obviously, but I think Emble can actually contribute to that. They already are, but maybe we can do it in an even more sort of, uh, um, I would say, forward-looking and expansive way. Um, so I think it's a challenge that uh, at the level of not just Europe but the world that we need to think about what's happening on our planet. And so for me, it's a challenge that is transformed into an opportunity um, as I become DG at Emble. Maybe we can actually help. Yeah, I guess that the challenges also would kind of overlap with your goals or is there anything that... Yeah, so more. so I think, I mean, first of all, I do want to say that um, my goal initially at Emble will be to, to really make sure that people carry on doing the fantastic things they do. And it's already, um, you know, a wonderful institution. So I don't need to, I don't actually need to do much initially, um, other than try and think about the future and make sure that things carry on running smoothly for people. Um, so my first... Uh, sort of goal is to try and make sure things go as easily and smoothly as possible for everyone without changing anything. The The current five-year plan that, that we're running through um, is, is running well. Um, and so, so the initial goal will be to just make sure that the transition is as smooth as possible because Ian Matai, um, you know, has been a fantastic DG. He's been here for many years. So I need to try and uh, make <laughs> sure that uh, there's not too much of a dip after his uh, departure and my arrival. Um, I also want to try and uh, make sure that the six different sites, host sites that um, Amble has are um, sort of, I would, you know, they're, they're put into the radar of everyone that there's a, a higher profile for some of the actions that are happening on these different sites. Can and you I just... So, for, yes, for sorry, yes. So, obviously, we have Heidelberg. Um, um, for example, in Heidelberg, there'll be a new imaging center that's going to be built soon, which is fantastic. And I think that's going to be, for me, it's wonderful to be, be here when that's going to happen. Then there's Hamburg, which is uh, much more into structural biology and... Um, It's also an amazing site uh, where I think there's lots of opportunities in the future, given, you know, the, the current uh, revolutions in structural biology. Um, then, of course, there's um, the EBI. Uh, and the so at Hingston, uh, which has been a, a, a huge success uh, for Amble, for the UK, for Europe, and um, and I think they are really at the heart of uh, many of the uh, sort of omics uh, approaches and analyses that are happening in Europe and maybe worldwide. They they really represent something rather unique uh, and a, and the philosophy and an attitude of you know open science sharing. Um, and then there's also Monte Rotondo in Italy, which is quite dear to my heart because it's a uh, part of uh, Monte Rotondo is dedicated to epigenetics. Um, and uh, and then finally, there's the latest edition, which is Barcelona um, and also Grenoble, I should say. Grenoble uh, in France that 
I, I got to know quite well. And again, structural biology. So um, that's the fifth site. And then the sixth site is Barcelona. Uh, they just opened uh, recently and where they're hiring new groups. And so, you know, this is six very different sites that all need to go forward together. And I think that's going to be another of my goals is to try and make sure that everyone is moving together as Emble and as one, but at the same time, each individual site uh, has its, I would say, share of fame and glory. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the scientific and technological goals, as I mentioned earlier, moving into more sort of uh, um, ecosystem type research, I think that's a natural evolution that's happening anyway within Emble. And I think that's what I would like to nurture, uh, especially given the, the interest right now uh, yeah. in society. Yeah. So coming more to the science you did or are doing, um, you're interested in understanding the mechanisms by which inactivation is initiated and maintained by chromatin proteins, histone, post-translational modifications, non-coding RNAs and DNA methylation. Can you? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously a, not an easy question, but can you shortly explain the, the principles of inactivation and why it's so important? Right. So um, to, to, to make it simple... Uh, The reason you need X inactivation is because females have two X chromosomes, males only have one X and, and one Y. And the imbalance in dosage um, of X-linked genes between females and males would be intolerable if females didn't shut down one of their two X chromosomes. We know that if you don't silence the over 1,000 genes on the X on one of the two Xs, a female embryo will die. So you absolutely need to, to achieve this dosage compensation. Um, and the way uh, it happens during development is something that you know people uh, have been trying to understand for many, many years. It's a beautiful example of epigenetics because you shut down one whole X and then keep it silent uh, across cell divisions without changing the DNA sequence in any way. So it really is uh, you know the perfect uh, epigenetic uh, yeah. example in mammals. It's also a very interesting situation of monoallelic expression where, uh, you know, having one copy on and the other copy off is absolutely essential. And yet some genes can manage to escape from X inactivation. So it's very interesting also from that point of view, you know, play, tweaking uh, gene dosage in different tissues, different times of development, uh, during aging, for example, and in cancer, you get different levels of escape from X inactivation. Um, and of course, the other thing that's fascinating about it is that most females have random X inactivation. So females are mosaics for X-linked gene expression. Um, and this has very interesting implications uh, for phenotypes um, and also for disease. Uh, and, and so that's something that I think is becoming much more, um, how can I put it? Uh, it's, it's a source of uh, curiosity and uh, increasing interest because there's a realization, for example, that most most uh, cases of some autoimmune disease are female. So so women get are much more susceptible to autoimmune diseases. And just recently, it's been discovered that some of the genes involved are genes that end up escaping from X inactivation. So That's having okay. a double dose will end up, you know, predisposing you to this kind of um, uh, disease. So so it's an interesting phenomenon, both from just the basic biology of it. How do you shut down a chromosome and keep it shut down uh, during development? And also from, a, I would say, you know, disease and uh, physiological perspective, what are the implications um, uh, in, a, in a female organism? So it was discovered over 
50 years ago by Mary Lyon, and we're still trying to work out how it works. And, and it's wonderful because it touches on non-coding RNA. There's a non-coding RNA that triggers it, of course, and then uh, it involves chromatin, and it involves chromosome organization. Um, it involves development. Uh, it involves, uh, you know, disease. So, so working on exon activation means I get to go to all these different sorts of <laughs> meetings, and, and people who come to my lab always end up finding something interesting to do because it, it, it's actually quite a, uh, yeah, a, a multifaceted uh, phenomenon. Um, yeah, this phenomenon is driven by the formation of facultative heterochromatin. Yeah. Um, can you just touch on some factors that involve uh, that are involved in this uh, process? Yeah, so as I mentioned, it, it's triggered by this non-coding RNA exist. Uh, we now know some of the factors that are brought in by the exist uh, RNA. This is all very recent, in fact, in the last couple of years. And it turns out that some of these proteins are not at all what we expected. They're Well, RNA binding proteins, which I guess you would expect, but they're also, some of them are transcription factors, some of them are uh, unknown or proteins of not such well-known uh, function, um, and there are some chromatin-associated proteins, and in particular polycomb. Um, and so it seems as if and so the, there's, there's a way that the cell recognizes that it has two X chromosomes, it upregulates this non-coding RNA only from one of them, the RNA coats the chromosome and brings in these factors and gradually the chromatin is changed. So you end up with H3K9 dimethylation, H3K27 trimethylation, and you lose many of the active marks uh, such as H3K4 methylation and H3 and H4 acetylation. So very rapidly, you set up a very different uh, chromatin and chromosome state um, in the same nucleoplasm as the active homologue. And that's what I find really fascinating. And that's why I think we and others have been very interested in whether there could be some kind of compartmentalization of the inactive X to keep it away from, you know, active transcription factors, etc., um, and so my lab uh, was very interested in trying to work out whether nuclear localization was important, whether chromosome compaction, reorganization was important. And I think that's something that we can finally start to crack with all of the tools and techniques that are now av available. Yeah. So there are a lot of questions that, that I could ask uh, now. Uh, sure. Because you, you touched a lot of them. Um, but you and your team developed new methods also in the field of immunofluorescence and this is also exciting now with the new imaging center now probably right build up um, yes yeah. how, did, how did those methods help you to unravel the mysteries here well so i'd spent quite a few years working on exon activation using um, molecular genetics um, and i realized after a few years that there was no way we would understand how this phenomenon was happening when we have indeed two alleles doing different things in the same cell let alone in a population of cells where you know, you have different proportions of cells that express one or the other X chromosome. So I realized out of frustration that I really needed to get in and start looking at the single cell level. Now, this was back in the 1990s. We didn't have all these <laughs> wonderful single cell omics techniques. Um, but we did have uh, techniques such as fluorescence in situ hybridization and immunofluorescence. And so indeed, I This realization took me to Cold Spring Harbor, where I spent um, a year in David Spector's lab. And so he's one of the great names in nuclear organization. And that's where, indeed, I, I set up um, combinations of RNA fish, DNA fish, and immunofluorescence so that we could look at, in single cells, the genome, the RNA it produces, and the proteins associated with one X chromosome versus another. 
And based on these combined technologies, I was able to so then... So you did, you did both stay in the DNA and the RNA yeah, in the same cell? Yeah, it's quite painful, but it <laughs> works. So you do the RNA fish and the immunofluorescence together, or pretty much, and then you have to do the DNA fish subsequently, oh. at least in those days. <laughs> so you have to image the cells twice. Oh, yeah. Um, But actually, it was wonderful because suddenly things would make sense. And, you know, when we were just looking at populations of cells on gels, whether, you know, northerns or westerns or whatever, um, one didn't really know what was going on. And suddenly we could actually see at the single cell level. And that was actually my, I would say, my lab's first breakthrough. When I set up my lab, we started to look at early embryos and using these antibodies against histone modifications combined with RNA DNA fish. Suddenly we could see when X inactivation was happening at the two, four, eight cell stage. And we discovered that the X gets inactivated and then it gets reactivated um, at the blastocyst stage, which was something that I don't think anyone was really expecting. Mm. And I remember, you know, my my wonderful Japanese uh, colleague, Iku Okamoto, who'd just been in my lab for six months. I remember he showed us these images at his first lab meeting. He he could hardly speak any English and we couldn't really understand. And we all just looked at each other and we thought, this is amazing. So that was when I realized the power of single cell techniques and also to look in a developmental context where you really get an, you know what the timing is. And so that then took me to both live cell imaging, um, which we then set up in the lab. And that's something that we're very um, interested in and, you know, imaging proteins and loci and RNA at the same time. So you really get the four dimensions. Um, and also now the single cell omics, which, you know, as soon as it started, we realized, well, we have to do this because then we can really look genome-wide or chromosome-wide yep. and we can use polymorphisms to d distinguish between our two chromosomes. And, and so now we're really doing a combination of the uh, sort of cell biology still, but also a lot of the, the omics. And that's how we also got into the... Um, the sort of chromosome confirmation capture um, omics as well. Yeah. Now, this was would be my next question. You were, recently you performed like five C experiments, and also wanted to like really grasp the three D structure of the X and yeah. activation locus. And yeah, well, it's funny. Uh, so I'll tell you how it happened yeah. because um, it's one of those things where that's the the wonder of uh, basic research. You go in there, you're asking a question, and you end up discovering something completely different. Um, so we wanted. I just wanted to know. What are the elements that regulate um, this non-coding RNA exist? And when I was a postdoc, we did these experiments with transgenes, big transgenes of several hundred kilobases. And we, we knew that these big transgenes as single copies wouldn't work. So, so we realized that there were missing elements. So we needed to look further. And when I heard about chromosome confirmation capture um, by listening to Job Decker, I realized that this could be the technique that would allow us to identify these long-range elements that were maybe regulating our gene of interest. So we did 5C. And this was Elfej Nora, who was a PhD student in my lab, who went and learned how to do it and got it to work. And And what did we find? We didn't find the long-range regulatory elements that we were <laughs> hoping for. We found these TADs. Um, so that was how we discovered TADs. We were just looking for a, for a few elements, and we ended up finding these topologically associating domains. But then suddenly we realized that this was this could explain what was missing. So we'd been looking at a few hundred kilobases around exist, our gene of interest, but actually we needed to look at two whole TADs, which harbor presumably all of the regulatory elements and that, so that was like 800 kb and so on the one hand it was wonderful because we stumbled across 
this new sort of level of chromosome folding um, that, you know, many people uh, were interested in. And on the other hand, it really allowed us to now dissect out what the regulatory landscape of our gene of interest was. So so that really opened up a whole new era in my lab. Um, and I should, I mean, it was really thanks to that work with Alfej and, and Job that, that that launched us into looking at chromosome folding in many different ways. And, and we then moved on to looking at the whole X chromosome and saying, okay, how does it fold then during X inactivation? Um, and we realized that, you know, the X, when it becomes inactivated, it loses TAD structure, but that, then it organizes into these huge mega domains or super domains as some call, some people call them. So, so these were things that we could never have sus- suspected, just looking at, even just looking down the microscope, uh, we needed yeah. to know what to look at. So it's it's really exciting because I feel that in the last few years, the technologies, the tools um, have really accelerated and we can finally start to crack the molecular basis for a process like exonactivation. And that obviously, uh, you know, touches on many other epigenetic phenomena as well. So um, since we are almost running out of okay. time, yes. um, is this like the, the touch? Yes. Is it then responsible for those ex- escaping Genes yes, or? that's an interesting question. Um, when we did the high C uh, with Job on, on the inactive X, or, or both the active and the inactive X, we realized that the genes that escape um, form, they're the only regions that seem to form TADs on the inactive X chromosome. So the whole X seems to become rather flat in terms of sub-megabase uh, folding. But but the gene, the regions that escape, they seem to form these domain-like structures of interaction. So we're very interested in working out whether these um, TADs at escapee loci, they actually underlie the basis for escape. In other words, are some regions just not able to collapse and completely get silenced, both, I'd say, you know, in terms of gene expression and architecture? So do they promote um, expression? Or is it because these genes come back on, because they, they, they wake up on the otherwise silent X chromosome, that structure then forms. So so that's exactly what we're trying to dissect now. And what are the elements that allow these TADs to form? And I know everyone's into CTCF cohesin and loop extrusion, but actually I think the rules might not be quite the same uh, in, in different uh, situations. And, and for these particular TAD-like structures, it could be that there are very different factors involved. So that's that's something that we're actively pursuing right now. Can you speculate on what kind of factors are... Do we not want to talk about that? No, no, I can speculate. I mean, you know, if I knew exactly, I probably wouldn't want to talk yeah. about it. But I can, I can, as we don't know exactly, I can speculate. Um, I, I think that there could be other proteins that can promote architecture. I mean, we already know that, for example, polycomb uh, domains can lead to things that look like TADs as well. Um, and so I think, you know, what's interesting about escape um, is that you really are in a very heterochromatic environment. So you need somehow to drive open chromatin. Um, And so I'm wondering whether there might not be some dedicated transcription factors that actually come in and wake up these regions. And these transcription factors could either be involved in transcription or they could be involved in recruiting architectural proteins to a locus. So um, what we're doing are screens, you know, back to genetics, (laughs) which we can now do in mammalian cells, luckily. So we're doing screens both for the transacting factors and also for the 
the cis element. So what are the elements that allow escape to happen? Um, and now, we, because we fluorescently tagged the, some of these escapee genes, we can really screen for both the elements and the factors that might bind to them. Um, and hopefully in a few years' time, we'll, we'll know a bit more. Maybe I can come back then to you Absolutely. and talk about <laughs> it. Just one last question, because yes. we had like, um, with Susan Gusser in yes. the last podcast, we had like this um, localization uh, yes. things and where heterochromatin is localiz yes. localized. So do you see that the inactivated X ha. is located different than the activated one or is it still uh, in there? So, you know, when I set up my lab, when I went to David Spector's lab to learn about nuclear organization, I came back to Paris and set up my lab thinking... I'm going to work out how nuclear localization or organization matters for X inactivation. So that was really my dream set of projects. My first grants were all written on that. So we started to look. And indeed, the inactive X is very often at the nuclear periphery. But then we realized that so is the active X if you do a chromosome paint. They're both at the nuclear periphery. And I think that's actually relevant. I think the X tends to be at the nuclear periphery because it is quite a repetitive chromosome. And actually, that's probably evolved in such a way because it's probably helpful that if you're, if you're going to be an X that inactivates, it might be helpful for you to be at the periphery. So the thing is, do you need to be at the periphery in order to be inactive or not? And we actually tested that um, by using a trick um, with uh, a system operators and repressors where we can drag a locus to the periphery. So we did that. We dragged, um, in fact, the gene that triggers X inactivation to the periphery, hoping that we would see that that would promote inactivation or, or help somehow. And we saw absolutely no effect. So at least for the initiation of X inactivation, we don't think localization at the periphery matters. And once you've inactivated, the inactive X does tend more to be at the periphery, but it, it can also be elsewhere. So frankly, I think for the inactive X, the jury is still out. It could be that it's just a consequence of heterochromatin liking to be at the periphery. Um, or it could be that if you really manage to disrupt that, you would see a slight effect on the maintenance of, um, of the epi epigenetically silent state. But in the end, when we do screens to find out, well, what actually causes escape with drugs... Um, it's things like methylation inhibitors. And so I actually think that the chromatin itself is key to keeping the chromosome silent and that heterochromatin tends to stick to heterochromatin. And whether or not that stickiness is useful is another matter. And we could say the same thing about droplets and phase separation. Yeah, exactly. It happens. For sure it happens. The question is, does it matter? That's the question. So Edith, thank you very much for your time thank and you. being here. This was the seventh episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at eurotech at activemotif.com. You can download the podcast also via iTunes. If you wish to stay current on epigenetics research, please subscribe to our newsletter on the Active Motif website. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.